Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. gentlemen, and welcome to your Profound Medical Second Quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on a listen-only mode, and the floor will be open for your questions and comments following the presentation. If you should require assistance throughout the conference, please press star zero to reach a live operator. At this time, it is my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, Stephen Kilmer, Investor Relations. Sir, the floor is yours. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Let me start by pointing out that this conference call will include forward-looking statements regarding Profound and its business, which may include, but is not limited to, expectations regarding the efficacy of Profound's technology in the treatment of prostate cancer, BPH, uterine fibroids, and palliative pain. Often, but not always, forward-looking statements can be identified by the use of words such as plans, is expected, expects, expects scheduled, intends, contemplates, anticipates, believes, proposes, or variations, including negative variations, of such words and phrases, or state that certain actions, events, or results may, could, would, might, or will be taken, occur, or be achieved. Such statements are based on the current expectations of management. The forward-looking events and circumstances discussed in this conference call may not occur by certain um, specified dates or at all and could differ materially as a result of unknown and known risk factors and uncertainties affecting the company, including risks regarding the medical device industry, economic factors, the equity markets generally, and risks associated with growth and competition. Although Profound has attempted to identify important factors that could cause actual results, actions, events um, to differ materially from those described in these forward-looking statements, there may be other factors that cause actions, events, or, or results to differ from these both anticipated, estimated, or intended. Forward-looking statements can be guaranteed, uh, cannot be guaranteed. Except as required by applicable securities laws, forward-looking statements speak only as of the date on which they are made and Profound undertakes no obligation to publicly update or revise any forward-looking statement, whether a result of new information, future events, or otherwise, other than as required by law. On the call today representing the company are Dr. Arun Manawat, Profound's Chief Executive Officer, and Aaron Davidson, the company's Chief Financial Officer and Senior Vice President of Corporate Development. With that said, I'll now turn the call over to Aaron. Thanks, Steve. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our second quarter 2020 conference call. On behalf of the management team at Profound, I would like to thank you for your ongoing interest in our company. Those of you who are shareholders, we appreciate your continued support. I will turn the call over to Arun in a moment for an update on our commercial activities. However, before I do, I'd like to provide a brief update on our second quarter 2020 financial results. To streamline things, all of the numbers I will speak to have been rounded and are therefore approximate. For the three-month period ended June 30, 2020, the company recorded revenue of $1.4 million Canadian an increase of 148% from 574,000 in the second quarter of 2019. Expenditures for research and development decreased $802,000 for the three months ended June 30, 2020, compared to the same period in 2019. The decrease was attributed to lower spending on materials and R&D projects due to the impact of COVID-19. 
as hospitals and testing facilities were not acceptable. Lower travel due to COVID-19 restrictions, decreased R&D personnel, and lower software and hardware costs. This was offset by increased spending to pursue reimbursement for Tulsa Pro market research and auctions awarded to employees. General and administrative expenses for the second quarter of 2020 were higher by $689,000 compared to the three months ended June 30th, 2019. The increase was attributed to higher costs associated with being a NASDAQ listed company, options awarded to employees, options vested during the period, increased insurance costs associated with being NASDAQ listed, and increased software costs for cybersecurity. This was offset by decreased salaries and benefits and travel due to lower personnel costs, as well as the, can the Canadian emergency wage subsidy and COVID-19 travel restrictions. Overall, the company reported a second quarter 2020 net loss of $7.3 million, or 46, 46 cents per common share, compared with a net loss of $5.8 million, or 44, uh, sorry, 54 cents per common share for the same three-month period in 2019. Subsequent to the end of the second quarter of 2020, we closed an underwritten offering of common shares, including the full exercise of the underwriters over allotment option, resulting in aggregate gross proceeds of approximately 46 million US dollars. Net proceeds will be used to fund the commercial launch of Tulsa Pro in the US and on the continued commercialization of Tulsa Pro and Sonali globally. As of June 30th, 2020, Profound had cash of $56 million. As a result of the aforementioned offering, the company had cash of approximately $112 million as of July 31st, 2020. With that, I'll now turn the call over to Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Today I will provide an update on our Tulsa Pro U.S. commercialization strategy. The first two operational sites, the Cianti Center in Florida and the Bush Center in Georgia, are continuing to treat a steady number and an increasing variety of patients. We're seeing that at these sites, that they mirror what we observed during our commercial launch in Europe, where physicians began using Tulsa Pro to treat intermediate risk patients, then to treat low and high risk patients, and then those with PPH. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, we estimated that after the first six to 12 months of being operational, the average run rate will be 40 procedures per year, eventually growing to 100 procedures or more after that. Based on the numbers of procedures these centers are conducting. Despite the pandemic, we still believe this target is attainable and that these sites may actually slightly exceed the target. Our first multi-site agreement with RADNET is delayed as Los Angeles region has been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. RADNET plans to be operational and treating patients at its first site 
by the fourth quarter of this year, followed by its second and third sites by the first quarter of next year. RedNet is currently recruiting additional staff and is reaching the final stages for our first systems installation. Of course, teaching hospitals or centers of excellence, as we often refer to them, also remain an important channel for profound, one that we will continue to pursue. I'm pleased to report that we completed the first Telsa Pro installation at the teaching hospital, the world-renowned Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, in early July. We're looking forward to receiving feedback from physicians and patients treated at this site as more procedures are performed, and we will be happy to share this feedback with you on our next call. In terms of 2020 site number expectations, I noted during our year-end call that the time to achieve our original expectation of 20 site agreements with 15 operational sites by the end of 2020 might be delayed by a quarter, perhaps two quarters, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We still believe that this revised expectation is accurate. That said, the revenue impact from these potential U.S. placement delays may well be somewhat offset by higher than anticipated per system utilization should that continue as it did in the first half of the year. Our operational sites are reporting that patients are responding well to the procedure. Physicians report that because of imaging and the ability to customize treatment, they're able to have a more engaging dialogue with their patients in terms of the treatment design. Post-treatment, patients are reporting minimal pain. In fact, patients are reporting even less pain in the commercial setting than what we observed in the TAC clinical trial in addition to quick recovery times with respect to erectile function. Also, as I briefly touched on earlier, Tulsa Pro sites are increasingly treating a variety of prostate patients, ranging from those with BPH to those with low to high risk, high volume disease, and even advanced cases. As physicians become more confident with and more accustomed to the technology, they're using it in a wide range of patients. We believe this confirms Tulsa Pro's flexibility. And even though we're still early in the commercialization stage, suggests that available market is indeed as large as we envisioned. We also believe that patients want to adopt a mainstream tool 
that can be used to treat a variety of patients rather than a highly specialized tool that can only be used in a small subset of patients. These observations, although still at an early stage, do speak to the adoption potential of the technology. BPH continues to be an important part of Profound's strategy. Every year in the U.S., there are 300 to 400,000 extreme BPH cases that require surgical intervention. The overall BPH market is large, up to 10 million patients. But most can be treated with either drugs or office-based interventional procedures that have become available in the last few years. Our target segment of this large market is only those patients who are not candidates for drugs or office interventions, but require one or more surgical procedures that are associated with significant side effects. We believe that treating those patients with TELSA, which is a one-time incision-free procedure, can fulfill a significant unmet need and complements other interventions that are typically used to treat other segments of the same disease. Although the number of patients treated with TELSA Pro to date is relatively limited, our clinical observations combined with the TACT trial demonstrating that the procedure shrinks prostates to 10% of their original size speaks to the durability of the treatment. I'd also like to point out that while other BPH treatment methods aim to widen the urethra to alleviate BPH symptoms, which is particularly difficult with large prostates, TELSA relieves BPH symptoms by removing excess prostate tissue, alleviating pressure on the urethra, and even the bladder to reduce the symptoms. In collaboration with our partners, we're continuing to gather data on the use of TELSA Pro to treat BPH to further evaluate what we believe is a significant opportunity in addition to the prostate cancer opportunity. Before I open the call to questions, I would like to provide a brief update on our TulsaProcedure.com website, which represents the beginning of our strategy to increase awareness of the procedure among patients. We continue to gather positive patient feedback and plan to augment the site with the launch of a patient forum in the fall. We are also working to initiate both surgeon-to-surgeon -surgeon and patient-to-patient -patient education programs and look forward to updating you on our progress. To summarize, 
what we're looking forward to in the near term, one, additional Tulsa Pro site agreements, two, expanding Tulsa adoption, both in terms of procedure volumes and types of patients treated, and three, enhancing our website marketing and education programs to provide even more comprehensive resources for patients and physicians. This ends our prepared remarks for today. With that, we're happy to take any questions you might have. Operator. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the floor is now open for questions. If you do have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time. If you're using a speakerphone, we ask that while posing your question, you pick up your handset to provide the best sound quality. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question or comment, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time. We'll take our first question from Josh Jennings with Cohen. Please go ahead, sir. Hi, good afternoon, Arun and Aaron. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, I just had a couple for you. Just first on the RADnet agreement, understand COVID's uh, pushed out that first site. There's some other sites that are going to come on board. After those uh, initial, I think, three or four sites, uh, do you have any line of sight for incremental centers that could uh, be sites for, for Tulsa Pro installations within that RADnet agreement uh, down the line? Sure, Josh. Good, good afternoon. Um, yes. So the Redneck site, I think, as I mentioned, is um, is at the moment uh, designed to be three sites. Um, I think uh, I would, uh, you know, certainly we are in conversation that the in the you know longer term uh, they can be the seed sites to proliferate adoption at other LightNet sites. Um, that is certainly not uh, in a written contract at the moment, but certainly something we will look at. Uh, what I can certainly, I think we've talked about this in our public forum, that we do see a good pipeline in place for the second half of this year anyway. So, so I do anticipate that you will see over the long haul uh, additional RedNet sites and certainly uh, this year you know, some good new sites uh, increasing our install base. Excellent. Thanks. You know, we do get a, a bunch of questions just on the path to reimbursement. You know, I, I know that there are a couple different channels, but is anything you can provide incrementally on this call? just in terms of uh, codes that centers can use uh, that are already in place versus uh, the potential for a pursuit of a, of a C code in front of a full, full out CPT code in a couple of years? Yes, absolutely, Josh. Um, so the first thing with respect to the C code, um, we, have, uh, we have a fantastic law firm out of Washington uh, supporting us uh, with the council that um, is former CMS council. We're very comfortable with the kind of support we have. Uh, 
the latest update is that they are converting the ideas that we have we talked about at the Q1 call into a, a specific coding guide that the hospitals can begin to use. That guide should be available within a few weeks. Uh, and we are certainly in dialogue with a number of hospital systems uh, where they are reviewing these recommendations as well. Um, so I do anticipate that that if the things that we have talked about continue to look the way they do, that by Q4 this year, a few of these hospitals will be, in fact, uh, using the code, and then we'll see uh, what progress we make. I think the other part of this is that if if the existing codes do have some issues, there's, you know, we think it should work, but if there is a probability that it doesn't, that there's always a little bit of it, that, you know, we are, you know, we've, we have had enough communications with CMS that our confidence level is higher, that a new code can be established relatively quickly. So I do think that in the end, the C code strategy could begin to have an impact on in our on our company's uh, uh, revenues in 2021. Um, you know, again, I would like to be cautious in the rate with which it happens, but I think it is still uh, meeting or beating our expectations. With respect to the longer term, the C code, sorry, the APC. CPC code, um, what we have said publicly is that, you know, we have reviewed the guidelines from the AMA, and we think that uh, engaging with uh, additional patients that are now starting uh, with respect to what we are calling TACT 2.0, which will effectively increase recruitment in the RTAC trial, and mostly these will be U.S.-based patients, that it will, in fact, uh, achieve one of the qualifications that we need to be able to file from the CPT code. In addition to that, we do anticipate additional publications that there is a reasonable expectation that by end of next year that we may reach the point where we will qualify to apply for the CPT code. And from that moment on, it's typically about an 18-month process. So I think the point that we've made is uh, we are quite comfortable today with the cash pay model, uh, particularly seeing that even during the pandemic, that our sites are treating patients uh, with the cash pay model. Uh, we do have a pipeline of patients lined up at the three sites. Even RedNet has patients lined up. Uh, pipeline of hospitals that we do anticipate closing later this year have patients lined up. And so the, our confidence that the patient pay or the cash pay model is real continues to be high. And then 
we will go into this intermediate strategy with the C code uh, perhaps sometime next year could begin to impact and typically is good for at least three years. And that we think we're on track to be able to apply for the CPT code within that time frame and then thereby have the long term. So these are the three buckets that we see. Uh, and we think that we have, you know, reasonable plans. And as the progress, as we make progress, we will certainly update. So I hope I've kind of answered it in a comprehensive way for you. Oh, that was great. Thanks for all the details, and uh, that was super helpful. And just one last question. I'll make it a little bit ahead of myself here, but just the Tulsa Pipeline, anything um, you can share, any details or updates on uh, design enhancements or iterations of Tulsa Pro, perhaps potentially to, to speed up the procedure or, or any other um, design changes that, that could be in the works. Uh, thanks for taking the questions. Sure, sure, John. So I, I think that, um, um, you know, we, as you know, we did a recent financing. Uh, one of the things that we have said is that uh, we do see uh, that our physicians are using the technology on a variety of patients. And um, as you also know, we have uh, what we call our profound genius services that are in place that do a pretty rigorous and comprehensive analysis of how the treatment is coming along and benchmark things and pluses and minuses. So one of the things that we are looking to do is simply in, certainly increase some of our investments in our L&D and our manufacturing sites that will allow us to, you know, evaluate the current technology and, and continue to enhance the technology with the goal that we want to be able to treat a minimum of four patients per day consistently uh, and that would allow our sites to um, schedule four patients per day, uh, which is something that our physicians have said to us is that they can be confident that a procedure will not go longer, they don't, they don't have to build in some contingency times, then they can start scheduling. So I think that I won't go into the details of what enhancements and so on, but our high our overarching goal is to continue to make the procedures uh, consistent easier to use, and the way we want to measure our success is the number of patients treated per day because that throughput ultimately, you know, drops to the bottom line for our customers. Understood. Uh, thanks again, Arun. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Rahul Sarivasar with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, Aaron. Uh, thanks so much uh, for taking my questions. Um, so, you know, as, as we think about, uh, you know, revenue increasing over the, you know, over this year and then, of course, next year and, and how that would be impacted by C-code, et cetera, you know, there's really two parts of the equation that we think about. 
One is the install base, and of course, the second is the utilization rate um, you know, off, off the existing install base. So, focusing first on the on the install base, I mean, you referred to a relatively strong pipeline. You know, we saw two sites up and running Florida and Georgia by the end of Q2, and then since then, we're quite rapidly uh, Mayo and then Radnet coming on online, as, as you mentioned, although it's not starting until Q4. Um, are there any sort of benchmark yardsticks that we can use to, you know, look out for between the, the balance between uh, radiation clinics and or teaching hospitals for, you know, for Q3 and Q4? Raul, I would, I would, to be honest, I would like to sort of come back to our market entry strategy. Um, I think beyond the fact that I do want to share that we feel good about our pipeline, obviously it's kind of early to share numbers and so on until it happens. And particularly because of the COVID, I think it's always unpredictable exactly when the deal closes and so on. Uh, but I can tell you is that there is no hospital that has said no hospitals are generally saying, you know, we are, you know, re-engaging. They're re-engaging with us. And they do see Tulsa as a revenue story and thereby, you know, and, and the way, you know, Aaron and Abby, uh, you know, they sort of put together a phenomenal recurring revenue model you know, the hurdles that relate to um, capital outlays and so on are minimal with our model. So I think that part, certainly, I, I feel good in terms of how we're positioned. But to answer your broader question, you know, I want to just go back to the, the original market entry strategy. Uh, one of the things that we felt uh, a year ago when we were just starting this process was that imaging centers will play a strong role and that uh, our goal was to first find a few sites that were already experts in ablation or already uh, sold on the idea that alternative therapies were needed. Uh, and then the next group was the imaging center group. And then the third group is really the teaching hospitals. And even though we felt that the teaching hospitals might not necessarily be the highest volume users in the early stage, we felt that we needed this triad of these three nodes of users in order to gain broad credibility for the long-term adoption of the technology. So that's how we're looking at this. So our priority, um, you know, when we quickly got the attention of the early adopter users or the experts, and when we quickly got the attention of the imaging centers, I'd actually suggested to our sales team that we should focus more on the teaching hospitals, you know, earlier in the year. And so I do think that you will hear more about these excellent centers and the bigger name hospitals uh, in the second half of this year, but they're more part of our strategic agenda. Uh, and I do think that once we establish the beachhead in all three of these nodes, then it will become a lot easier to drive, you know, broader adoption. So 
I apologize if I don't know if I've really answered your question. I'll try to be more, you know, sharing in terms of our strategy of, of how we're going about driving the broad adoption. I, that, that, I think that was actually a very fair, a fair answer, and, and you did, did give me more color than, you know, than I probably deserve. So thank you. Um, so thank maybe you. then coming back to the, uh, the second part of that equation, and this is probably well, uh, you know, probably lean on a little bit on you, Aaron, is you know the utilization rate, and I, I see in, in the in the statement, and maybe it was their last quarter, but at least I'm, I'm noticing it for the first time, this revenue line of paper procedure, and uh, and, and a significant ramp from between Q1 and Q2 from 41,000 to 98,000. Of course, you know, we can't really correlate that with a you know utilization rate per per site, but, you know, is that something that we could be using as a proxy for recurring revenue, uh, particularly given that, you know, this is, you know, fundamental to uh, to your model? And, and and maybe I can be asked another cheeky question is sort of what, you know, average rate, I think we've been using around $2,500 per procedure, uh, you know, can be used for our modeling um, uh, as, as, we, as we try to project your recurring revenue going forward. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to make things a little more opaque rather than clear for a second, and let me clarify. So we went out to the market initially with offering a couple options. You could buy a device and pay for disposables in conjunction. You could rent a device and buy disposables, or you could just uh, buy disposables and pay per click. As we've seen patient demand be strong, as we've seen COVID-19 and other things be problems, we've just between last quarter and this quarter, we've said, forget about selling devices. We really don't want to sell them. We really want to own them. We really want to maintain, uh, rather than securing more dollars up front and giving up more on the back end, we really just don't want to sell anymore. And renting is sort of similar. You rent and lock in a fixed number, but we believe we can drive higher volumes on the devices. So we really don't want to rent devices anymore. We really just want to sell procedures. And so as of about midway through last quarter, we actually changed our model a little bit more. And this is, you know, the evolution of launching a product. We said we actually don't even want pay-per-click, which appears there, and disposable separately. We just want to sell procedures, and we're signing agreements at $11,710 per patient. Now, there will be a few who are grandfathered in here through the first year when we had a rental and we had uh, some other things where you will have the separation of pay-per-click and rental. And uh, But what you'll see quickly is as we add sites, those other ones are going to become rounding errors, and it'll all be uh, pay-per-procedure in the U.S. For the mo like, from what we know today, and things change every day, from what we know today, it will be uh, become procedure, revenue uh, procedures, and it will be 77.10 per procedure. So I apologize that maybe doesn't make it easy today, but it will get easier in time, quarter over quarter. Right. That's okay. Totally get that, and, and we'll definitely look forward to seeing that sort of emerging from the numbers in, in future quarters. But just for the short term and help to help us sort of elucidate the separation between Europe and the U.S., 
my assumption is that the you know the installed base in Europe is, is quite a different model because those were you know were installed you know under the previous sales model. So how do we how should we think about revenue in Europe relative uh, to you know the newer model that's um, in the US? And of course that will the impact of those numbers will moderate over time as you know you increase the install base in the US. But at least for the short term, how should we think about uh, revenue and recurring revenue in Europe? Yeah, so Europe does have recurring revenue because we sell disposables in Europe, and we actually, the last two sites we installed in Europe were all per procedure revenue. Um, uh, so there's a blend there too, Rahul, so unfortunately it's not an easy answer, but what I will tell you is a couple quarters from now, it'll get, if assuming what we know today stays, which I hope it will, uh, it will start getting clearer and clearer. But today in Europe, we have some rental income, we have some pay-per-click, we have some disposable income. What I would say is... Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, oh, yeah, no, that was it. I was, I was just going to say thank you. I, I think I've, yeah, we, I, I'm sorry to be a pain, but yeah, it, I think that the, the numbers you shared today are really do provide light. And, you know, I think the higher level yeah. numbers that, uh, that Arun shared in his opening comments, particularly our BPH, are quite exciting. And so we'll definitely look, to, look forward to seeing the impact of that. So I'll thank you for taking my questions and I'll thought off there. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Cecilia Furlong with Canaccord. Please go ahead. Hi, Arun and Aaron. It's John on for Cecilia tonight. Thank you for taking our questions. I just want to start out by asking, John. what are you seeing? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of access to imaging centers versus large hospitals? Any thoughts on longer-term trends that you think COVID could have in terms of where patients are treated? And perhaps you could compare and contrast what you've seen in Europe versus the United States. John, that's a great question, actually. Um, we, to be honest, feel a little bit lucky about that because Imaging centers tend to be stand-alone places. And, you know, I've talked about this a little bit also in the last few weeks that, you know, there are about two to three times more imaging centers in the United States than there are hospitals. And these imaging centers are actually pretty conveniently located because as citizens, we you know, tend to, you know, diagnosis is a much bigger part of the business, and thereby we tend to go get image for, you know, pretty much any serious disease. Um, so at those centers, you know, they do not have, there's no incision. Uh, they are cleaner. They have um, a, a large, you know, waiting area. They treat one image one patient at a time. So, uh, and they really cannot help the hospitals that have been busy with the pandemic patients. Uh, and so the imaging centers have turned out to be a place where patients are willing to go. Um, and we think that even after the pandemic, that can be quite frankly, a positive because people will feel comfortable going to these places. Um, so I think from that perspective, we feel fairly good. The other question that 
I think you have is, you know, what about this use of MR, is the availability of MR and so on. And I think that uh, that was certainly one of the questions that we had as we were, you know, beginning to develop the technology, you know, is the fact that we're using an MR a good thing or a bad thing in terms of commercialization? And I, I can tell you at the moment we think it is a very, very good thing. From not only from the perspective that, as I mentioned in the prepared remarks, that the images can be shared between the patient and the urologist, you know, diagnostic images are shared, and thereby they actually have a dialogue. They can say, you know, I see the disease right here, and I can, you know, your disease is, is much more aggressive, so I want to not just treat the section that looks like you have cancer, but I want to go beyond that. And by the way, it's going to affect this and this. And if, you know, if saving a jacket or duct is really critical to you, then I'm going to really work hard to save those for you so you can not only have good erectile function, but also have ejaculatory function after the procedure and so on. So I think not only from the perspective that it is creating that, uh, and, and it allows for that flexible treatment in a variety of patients that we've talked about, but from a pure business point of view, it is a positive. And where, what I mean by that is, and you may have seen this, even just the latest proposed, um, you know, CMS, uh, you know, guideline that just came out a week ago, uh, diagnostic uh, radiology payments are down 10%. Uh, that's what they're holding again for next year. And that trend has been going on for the last seven, eight years. So when you look at an imaging center as a business, and you ask the question, you know, on a per unit time basis, what will give you more profit? There's no question Tulsa will win that. Because anytime you're doing an intervention, it is more intense and requires more attention and thereby the reimbursement is higher. So, you know, a, a MRI, uh, you know, might, reimbursement might be five, six hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars per hour for diagnostic, that's maybe being generous. Uh, a toe-step procedure, you know, or if I just generalize it, any intervention where imaging is used in an interventional procedure typically is two to three times higher. So I think that per unit profit sort of gravitates towards Tulsa. So, you know, in hand in this, sometimes people ask the question, well, you know, is there a shortage of MR and so on? Um, but from that business perspective, not only that we have not seen anything like this, I, I really think it's going to be a, a positive. Thank you. That's helpful. Um, and then just my follow-up. Any uh, updates on Sonaleave, uh, current thoughts around its longer term in the United States? Uh, so, John, good question. We talk about Tulsa because our, you know, we internally say to our, uh, our people, you know, our priority one, two, three is Tulsa because we see 
a significant upside, but indeed Sana Leave uh, is doing well in the international markets. And I would say give us another quarter or two and we will provide, we do have things in the works, but they're too early to be, you know, bringing out in public domain. But certainly we can tell you that things are in the works at the moment. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, John. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time. Again, that's star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time. We'll take our next question from Ben Hainer with Alliance Global Partners. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for taking the questions. Uh, a couple real quick ones here for me. Just following up uh, on the uh, payment or paper procedure, um, you know, kind of model adjustment, what I guess how many centers right now or how many sites right now are fully on that model and if any, uh, you know, just I guess kind of a short question there. Yeah, it's a bit of a trick question because, yeah, what I can tell you is, um, well, I have to be careful because there's so few number at this point you can identify, but one is on a rental where they rent <laughs> per month and pay for disposables. Another is on, and the other two are on uh, pay-per-click and disposable. Okay, which, fair enough. Which really cool. is, by the way, pay-per-click and disposable really is the same as 7710 per procedure. It's just combining them. But, okay, and then maybe a follow-up. Does that all currently fall under pay-per-procedure then, or does part of that fall under products? No. So today, some of it falls under pay-per-click and some falls under disposable. Okay, but going forward, aside, you know, as the new accounts come on, our new sites come on, it'll it'll be in paper procedure, and the, only the legacy sites will have some that split off into products. Correct. Got it. <clears throat> Great. And then, uh, you know, just looking at the uh, TulsaProcedure.com site, uh, looks like you've got a Canadian Tulsa Center. It says coming soon. Just curious on when that install is taking place. <laughs> well, that happened fast. Uh, uh, it's probably a little too early to say. Okay. I just thought I'd sneak that in. Ben, uh, that's all I have. Ben, Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Ben, I would, ben, I'm impressed that you've looked at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they, they should be coming up. I think um, we will um, we'll certainly announce as it happens. Uh, but, you know, you can imagine we have a couple of of, um, uh, you know, leading urologists in Canada, and there's been quite a bit of uh, requests from the Canadian community to at least put one site here as well, so. Well, makes sense. Well, great. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the questions that we have at this time. We'll turn the call back over to Dr. Minowet. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you so much, and um, we are, you know, looking forward to updating you at the next uh, next uh, Q3 call. Thank you for your time. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's teleconference. 
We thank you for your participation. You may disconnect your lines at this time and have a great day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.